This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the results, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app and you'll get rewards points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus rewards registration required. Points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. At Progressive, we know there's nothing like the feeling of riding a motorcycle with your crew on the open road. That symphony of engines roaring in perfect harmony. It's a feeling that would be impossible to recreate on the radio. Until now. Hit it, Jerry. Oh, my word. Really, really terrible. Was that a glockenspiel, Jerry? Quote with Progressive and see if you could save with America's number one motorcycle insurer. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Uh, no, Jerry. It's over. This is a um, special show. We've got a, a guest on today, uh, a gentleman by the name of Owen West. You've probably maybe seen him on Twitter. Um, reason I know Owen is that Owen used to be the, uh, I think it was the Chief Superintendent. Were you Chief Superintendent? Chief Super, yeah, Mickey. Yeah, Chief Super at West Yorkshire Police. Uh, Owen was the man who listened to our madness and, and believed that treating Millwall like normal fans was the way forward, and he basically got rid of the travel ban um, so that you guys could uh, go to Leeds and go around. In fact, it was Owen who suggested that he open up the town centre um, and basically let Millwall fans go wherever they want, put some buses on if they wanted to get a bus to the stadium and not. So he's a very forward thinking. Uh, he's no longer in the police force. He's now a... Um, a free speaker really on how football fans are treated or how badly football fans are treated. And he is with a, a group of others um, trying to change the way policing as a, as a whole um, operates within the football community. So um, great pleasure welcoming Owen to the show. Good morning, Owen. Morning. Thanks, Mickey. Thank you. So um, obviously, as I said, you, you and a man with, um, with Leeds. So, is it right, really, that if you treat football fans like normal individuals, then you get a better response from them? 
Yeah, all, all the evidence that's out there, all the academic evidence is that if you show respect, if you problem solve, if you engage, if you you know have a good level of dialogue between fans uh, and police, if you do as a as a copper, if you do your best to make that day go as easily and as and as smoothly as you can, then all the academic evidence, all the science, and there's lots and lots of papers written about this, all point to the fact that you will get. Uh, better relationships, you will uh, reduce conflict much quicker, you will put lots of what I call goodwill in the bank for the next time that that particular team comes to your town, and that you'll have a, a decent carry-on, and you know, let's be right about it, that's what we're that's what we're trying to achieve with all of this, um, to have a decent carry-on with football fans, to uh, have a sensible approach that doesn't involve hundreds and hundreds of cops in riot gear with dogs with horses with the helicopter above you know almost like an army of occupation where it's it's just not needed um so yeah you're, you're absolutely right to point that one out yeah um, you've also been a, a strong voice on safe on safe standing yeah so on safe standing, I mean, I'm always looking for progressive things to do to have to try and have a positive future for for fans. Uh, and one of the things I did was go up to Parkhead and look at safe standing up there. Actually, during an old firm derby, and I think you know my view is if it, if it can survive an old firm derby up there, then then you know there's not a lot wrong with it. But what I did there with some other colleagues is go speak to stewards. I spoke to fans. I spoke to officers, and they absolutely loved it. It worked. Now it's important to say. Because some people confuse safe standing with the whole of the ground becoming safe standing. It's not that at all. It's sections that want to have safe standing. It doesn't mean that everyone's going to be compelled to stand. And I saw it. I saw the atmosphere up there. I saw what it did for fans. And, and, and I saw that everybody that's important, i.e. the people on the ground that are actually there and the stewards absolutely loved it. And the issue with that is, if we come back to, you know, what's getting in the way of a lot of these, you know, these reforms, and we might talk about it when we talk about, um, you know, the, the ban on alcohol, etc. If you look back at what happened at that time, the SJSA, the Sports Ground Safety Authority, were up for it. The FA were up for it. There were several MPs who were, were, were up for it. The Football Safety Officers Association were up for it. And the only group of people, the only stakeholder in this, in this discussion that said no and blocked it, was the police at a national level. And not only did they block it, but they blocked it um, on the basis of completely spurious and made-up uh, suggestions that safe standing would lead to racial chanting. Where they came to that, I've no idea. It's not written down anywhere. No one can evidence the fact that this, this, has, this would happen. But it was just them raising this spectre of, uh, here's something that we don't like, and if people go ahead with this, then you're going to see racial chanting. And you're going to see, you know, a return to the to the seventies and eighties. So we are getting there slowly with safe standing. But but what really pisses me off, and what really angers me about this, and a number of other things we might talk about, is after Hillsborough, which is what thirty three years ago. After Hillsborough, it strikes me that the one agency, the one group of people that should be pushing for change and for positivity and doing things right should be the police. And I'm sick and tired of the police at a national level being the ones that say no and say no without evidence, without any backup, but just wanting to keep the status quo. So um, I'm still an advocate of safe standing. 
uh, and we're slowly, slowly getting there. But all of the issues around that, around, you know, labelling fans as potential racists because they were standing up rather than sitting down, there's no need for it. It, it. You know, it it places the fans and the police at loggerheads and, and, and it frustrates the hell out of me. I think the problem is as well is that the, um, the National Football um, Police Unit think um, they are well above any other part of the police force. Well, probably not. Probably there, there are other departments what, what feel the same. But for some unknown reason that, you know, the football unit as a whole um, thinks they have special powers to intimidate, to, um, you know, stop fans, stop this, do whatever they want. I mean, football fans at the moment are treated probably the worst in any sporting arena. Um, you, it's the only sporting arena where you can be arrested for going in drunk. Um, you're not allowed to drink a beer in front of the pitch and can actually be arrested if you took a pint into the stands. You could legally be arrested. Um, you know, most most clubs um, work closely with police. They have a, a sharing agreement in place. Um, and if, for instance, you're arrested outside for drugs, away from the stadium, potentially that police officer or the police will tell the, the club and potentially you will end up getting a ban. Um, and talking about bans, I suppose, takes us on briefly, you know, onto the football banning order. Um, anywhere else in the world, football banning orders would not take place. It's just literally because they're a civil offence, they don't actually need any real evidence what would um, what would cater for in a, in a criminal case or a criminal court. Um, they can have pretty much hearsay evidence to say that we suggest this man's going to be violent going forward. We need him banned. So let's just talk about banning orders, if we may. There's two types, as, as, as your listeners might be aware of. There's a 14A, which is basically you get a ban if you've been convicted at court of a football-related offence. And I, I don't think many people would argue with that. If you've had a fair court process and you've been found guilty and you've done the wrong thing, then, then you, you, you're probably going to pick up a ban. The one that worries me is a 14B, and that is a ban on complaint. And what that means essentially is if the police think you've been involved uh, in football-related antisocial behaviour, then they can apply for a ban with actually very little evidence uh, and, in many cases, guilt by association. So there's a, a friend of mine, Dr Jeff Pearson from Manchester University, writes a lot. He's, he, he sort of lectures and, and his specialism is on law and particularly on law in, in relation to sport. And him and his colleague have looked at many, many Section 14s over the years and they've come to the conclusion that it is very, very thin evidence. It's guilt by association. Um, and there are lots and lots of, of examples. And Amanda Jackson, you'll know well, Mickey, you know, has got a drawer full of these, you know, people throwing an empty paper cup uh, on the floor, getting a ban, you know, all this sort of stuff. But not only is that sort of um, that guilt by association, it's like the sus laws. If you remember, you're probably not old enough to remember, Mickey, but the, the old sus laws around, you know, the police could basically suspect, suspect you of anything and stop and search you. Um, that's basically it was it was you know got rid of years and years ago because obviously it's a very pernicious and a very uh, worrying power it was got rid of but apart from in football which is where you see a section 14 which is effectively the, the sus laws so that's worrying the really worrying thing for me and I'm not sure many many of the public understand this is that there is a financial incentive for police forces to get banning orders because they then draw down funds from the Home Office. And they can, if you like, run their spotters units, their 
football planning officers, their DFOs, all of that little uh, unit, that office that works around football in a particular force is funded by the number of banning orders that that force gets. Now, to really drive that point home to people listening to this, you just imagine for a second, if the police were being paid every time they did a stop search, it would be, and there'd be a national outcry quite rightly. But that's effectively where we are with this. What we're saying is the more banning orders you can get in as a force, the more money you will access from the Home Office to pay for your football units. And, and I think that that whole Section 14 area, that whole sort of banning orders by financial incentive needs looking at because that is potentially criminalising a lot of people that otherwise wouldn't have been within the criminal justice system with everything else that comes out of that. And the best people to, to sort of look at, as I say, is Jeff Pearson, because he's, you know, I'm here sort of talking about it. Uh, Jeff's written about it, he's studied it, he's researched it, he's put papers out there, um, and, and he's got the evidence in terms of how thin some of these things are and how worrying it is, bearing in mind the state the criminal justice system's in at the moment. We ought not to be firing more and more people through that funnel. Um, and, you know, it's just the whole thing just really, really worries me. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Um, and I think we will get Jeff on. But, yeah, it's something like three and a half grand. But if you speak to the police, they will tell you that actually the amount of evidence that goes in, the amount of time and effort that goes into actually finding evidence on a on a fan, um, it, it, it outweighs that. But I don't think it does. I think that they need that money and they've now started living on that money, especially with Andy Roberts um, driving it from a national level, that... I wouldn't be surprised if there isn't targets between each police force football football unit to have so many bands per year. I mean, I know Millwall fans, you know, go back a few years with um, the Euros in France who were given um, football banning pretty much even though they weren't charged, but they were given football banning orders of three, five years because they were known risk offenders and it was an easy way to be able to get them because they weren't leaving themselves open um, in any other options. So they were pissed off and they just went, Bob, we'll have them. And they still continuously go after risk fans who are on bands, you know, where they drink, where they hang out, and, and pretty much realistically in any other form of life, um, go on a show of harassment. Um, you know, if it, if, if it was any other uh, walk of life, then you'll probably be filing cases for harassment. But because you're a football fan, it's, it's a lot harder to go along. Let's just talk about harassment for us. Well, first of all, um, I don't think there are targets set for banning orders, but there are definitely expectations. You know, I've been in the force when we've had calls from the UKFPU, the, the United Kingdom Football Policing Unit, putting us under pressure in relation to Leeds fans and what we're doing about that. So whether there's targets or not, I'm not too sure, but there's certainly expectations that you will, you know, clamp down and do these sorts of things. And just on, on harassment, because... One of the things that really, really got me into this whole business was actually Leeds v Millwall. Um, and I can't quite remember. I go to a lot of matches up and down the country and I go to a lot of matches internationally as part of the work that we're doing now. And I did when I were in the job. And I remember observing, so I wasn't involved, but I went in, in sort of jeans and T-shirt as a serving senior officer to watch the policing operation for Leeds v Millwall, uh, whenever that was. And... I'm still struck, and I said, when I go and speak at conferences and stuff, I still talk about this, which was an inflated intelligence picture that made that all the fans had to go to the motorway service station 
to pick up the tickets. All the fans were video filmed as they got off the coaches. I was there and saw that, that video filming of people that were just getting off a coach to go in, get a coffee, get a sarnie, whatever, and pick up the ticket. And that didn't look particularly good. And then we went down to Elland Road and we saw the massive show of strength that the force had put on for the coaches to come in, Millwall coaches to come in. And people sort of don't believe me when I tell this, but I stood there and I watched this first uh, coach sort of decamp in, in the, the top car park. Interestingly, the cops call that Camp Bastion because of the military-grade fencing that's around it. Uh, and that tells you a lot about, you know, the language and the tone and temperature around some of these things. So I, I saw families, literally families, get off. I saw old gents. I saw a couple of people with walking sticks. I saw families, I saw intergenerations of families getting off from Millwall to come to Leeds. And on one particular uh, occasion that still sticks with me now, I saw a guy come off, an elderly chap with a walking frame. And him and these families walk through sort of ranks of my officers, West Yorkshire officers, really over the top in terms of uh, the the uh, the welcome, if I can put it that way, that they were given. Uh, and I just felt deeply, deeply professionally embarrassed. And, it, and that's probably, you know, one of the main fixtures that sticks in my head around why I got involved in, in this sort of work, to, to treat people like that, to put the sheer number of cops uh, that were put on that day. And, you know, in my own force and in others, you know, we've been to briefings where in, in you know, in gyms and places like where you've seen 400, 500 officers. You've seen rest days cancelled across the force. Um, just an amazing amount of cops. And I'll just give you a quick stat. When I was still in, I, I did some research and I looked at three seasons worth of policing in West Yorkshire. For those that don't know, West Yorkshire covers Leeds, Huddersfield and Bradford in the main, uh, football-wise. Um, so I looked at every single cop, no matter what role they were at, if they were involved in some way or other within football over three seasons, how many did we have? And believe it or not, we deployed over 18,000 officers over three years at a cost of over £4 million for policing football. Well, just imagine what 18,000 cops could do to domestic abuse, to county lines, to CSE, you know, knife crime. It, it, it's, it needs to change. And just picking up, Mickey, what you said before, because, again, people might not be aware. Basically, football policing policy is set nationally. It's led by Deputy Chief Constable Mark Roberts of South Yorkshire Police uh, and a team in the Home Office. And they're a really powerful group. They effectively tell forces how to go about policing football, how to go about banning orders and, and dealing with disorder and what have you. And there are, it's very, very difficult for forces who want to change, who want to do things differently and be more progressive and more forward-thinking. It's very difficult for them to get out from under this national sort of uh, control and, and, uh, and telling forces what, what they will actually do. And that's part of the problem, some of the, the politics and policy around all of this. You also touched, you touched on, on the ban on alcohol, and I'll just come to that, if I may, just very very briefly. One of the reasons, I think, why it's back in the, in the sort of discussion point now is that COVID's going to be with us for quite a while, as we know, and it's important, particularly for lower league clubs, to try and get some fans back in. And one of the things that's causing an issue with that is congestion at the concourses and this whole business of how do you social distance if people are going to go 
to the bars and the concourses at the back of stands and what have you. And that's why it's brought it, you know, back into the fore. And again, there's lots of evidence uh, written down, evidence-based sort of policing, if I can put it that way, about the unintended consequences of the alcohol ban. The fact that people preload to some tune before they get to the ground, that there's congestion on the concourses. Sometimes if the, if the fans are uh, sort of sharing a concourse, but there's a little thin barrier between them, you can get tension happening there. And once again, you know, the police, sadly, said if, if we were to allow people to have a drink in their seat watching the game, that that again would lead to racial chanting. And, and, it, and you know, that sort of thing, it angers me because this is sort of weaponising racial hatred as a way of the UK FPU getting their way and saying, no, we're not having any of this. Whereas actually, if you think about it, there might be some matches, Mickey, out there that are genuinely high risk, where the club or the police might say, you know what, for this one, no, we don't want people to get a beer while they're watching the game. But just think of the, I don't know how many in a season, the, the, the category A, very low risk, the category B, medium risk. I think there are a number of matches out there where fans could get a drink and watch the game without much difficulty at all. And my view would be, why not pilot it? Why not give it a go? Uh, and if it works, great. If it doesn't, you know, then go back to the drawing board. But once again, we've got this police national view, which is, you know, it always says no, no, no. Uh, and this is the thing that, you know, needs, needs to change. And this is the sort of thinking that led us to the debacle about, neutral venues and you know when, when we're in the teeth of the lockdown when uh, there was a lot of movement to try and get the game back on one of the things that came up was that you know the police at a national level and it what I can tell you it was not local forces police at a national level wanting to go to neutral venues and people listening to this will remember all the saga and all the grief around neutral venues and again just you know what were we told we were told by the UK FPU that fans would gather, even at training grounds, that there'd be lots, you know, there'd be a mass gathering at a training ground. Well, bollocks. And it never happened. But there was never an apology for suggesting that fans would break lockdown rules and do that. And this whole sort of neutral venues thing was couched around the threat of disorder and violence, that old narrative that fans can't be trusted, they can't be given an inch because they're inherent, inherently uh, violent. And then the government were told, again, at a national level from the police, that because of everything that was happening in COVID and all the sort of stresses and strains on, on police and emergency services, that football couldn't, that fans couldn't be allowed back in. So again, we were, we were using the virus to get the national view of, we don't, want to, we don't want to go ahead with this. And what really struck me, and, and I don't know if any of you, of you listeners saw it, but there was an interview um, done with Mark Roberts. Uh, and he talked in there about people needing to get a grip. Uh, fans he was talking about and people within the game. And, that, and, uh, and, I've, and I've, I'm just, I've written it down because I want to make sure it's right, that fans needed a stark reminder of the dangers of COVID. Well, as I said at the time, you know, fans aren't some other entity that don't exist outside COVID. Fans are frontline NHS workers. Fans are family members. They will have lost family members. They will be worried to death working in the NHS in, in being a nurse or a, a porter or a doctor or whatever. You know, to suggest that somehow they, football fans in particular, needed a stark reminder about COVID. Absolutely uh, appalling. 
you know, people will have lost jobs and livelihoods in this, and many, many people have up and down the country. And nobody needed a stark reminder from the UK FPU about that. I thought the language was appalling. So instead of focusing on, on the public health threat, that, that was the threat. How do you get people in and keep them safe in terms of not picking up this, this bloody virus? But instead of talking about the public health uh, priority, we got the hooliganism again. We got that old 1970s, 1980s narrative around there'll be a disorder threat if you, if you let them in. So even in that pandemic, even in unprecedented times when the game is desperate, and you know we might, we'll probably see some clubs sadly go, even then the police just couldn't leave that tired, tired old narrative alone, and, and, and it sickens me, it really does. I totally agree with you, and, and I kept getting his name wrong. It's not Andy Roberts, he's Mark Roberts, who's the same person I was thinking of. Um, and the problem is, is that his actual area, which is South Yorkshire, has major crowd disorder um, and issues, which you're probably not surprised. He, he was um, some of the teams what were looking to play as, as far down as Southampton um, so that they didn't have, you know, Sheffield Wednesday, Sheffield Jedi, you know, or, or Derby, I think it was, and, and Sheffield um, United or Sheffield Wednesday were looking to be moved. Um, and you just think, like, if if he just managed to just think for a little while and drop the narrative that football fans are evil, football fans are scum, um, then, you know, they'd probably behave a lot better um, as a whole and there wouldn't be this hatred. I mean, there's always going to be a hatred between um, police and fans. It, 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 you know, it's part and, parcel, part and parcel of life to, you know, within that sort of working class community as such. But... Um, the reputation that football unit has as sneaky, as um, snidey, and will basically fit you up. They've got the same reputation now as as the old Sweeney, you know, pretty much the old flying squad. They will fit you up and, and allegedly and um, get a football banning order on you. If they haven't got enough to put you for a criminal court, they get a football banning order on you. We all know the 5am kicking the doors is just so they can get hold of your phone to see who you're associating with and whatnot. It's been said by Amanda, it's been said by other lawyers. I just think that we're in 2020, there's got to be a, a different way to be able to police um, going yeah, forward. Yeah, I completely agree. Let, let's just, you know, that narrative that we talked about, that old sort of hooliganism thing, let's just see it play out in, in, in a case study. And this happened in September. And this was Watford v Luton. And, it you know, it's classic. It's a really good example. It, it sets up what happens a, a lot of the time. Started with really strong messaging from Hertfordshire Police. And we've seen it all before. There'll be extra officers, expect to be arrested. Anyone with info on people coming to cause trouble, you know, come and talk to us, come and tell us about it. Then we saw Graham Taylor's statue being boarded up. Um, on the basis of this, you know, this massive disorder that was going to happen. I mean, what on earth are we doing about boarding up statues? Uh, and, you know, the game was being ramped up as a real potential for serious disorder. And, you know, obviously I'm not privy to the intelligence, but those two teams last played them each other 14 years ago. You know, where is the contemporary up-to-date evidence uh, and intelligence that these two sets of fans were going to kick off? when they'd not even got together, for, you know, 14 years ago. Most of the coppers that went to that event would have been in the job 14 years ago. 
And it reminded me of one very close to home for me. And again, one of the matches that we, we went to observe was back in my force. And it was Huddersfield versus West Ham. And I'll never forget it because at the briefing, there was practically no intelligence at all to say there was going to be a particular bother. Uh, and part of the reason for that was it had been 26 years since those two clubs last played each other. But that said, it was said on the briefing that, oh, but by the way, 26 years ago when they did play, there was some disorder, there was some problem. So there was almost a case of, here's the justification for having a gym full of bobbies because 26 years ago it kicked off. And, you know, it's times like that as, as someone who's been in, was in policing for 30 years and I've got a lot of family in it. You just put your head in your hands, you know, and, and I looked around the gym and I thought, you know, 90% of the people in this room weren't born 26 years ago, let, let alone in, in, in the job. But that's the sort of narrative that's out there. Now, back to Watford Luton, I, I'm told that around 50 officers were deployed um, to that in the end. And as you should probably be aware, it was a completely non-event. Nothing happened. All of this, you know, doom and gloom and there's going to be a mass disorder and let's board up statues. Bugger all happened. But we still managed to lose 50 officers from communities dealing with all those crimes and incidents and calls for help to go and stand around just in case something happened. And it's a classic example, and Millwall know all about this, a classic example of reputation coming before evidence and coming before you know people's behaviour. Uh, and a lack of credible risk assessment. So to justify the overreaction, because the force got a load of stick, you know, they then sort of doubled down on it. And there was some stuff in the paper saying, you know, some fans had turned up. It was a handful of fans had turned up and some had ventured into town. Well, so what? And why does it need 50 officers to deal with a handful, by their own admission, a handful of people? So there's a lot that needs to, to change, Mickey, in terms of um, trying to overturn some of this. And, and, and let me tell you, for someone who's been involved in it, you know, for quite a while whilst in the job and now out of the job, it's bloody difficult to overturn some of this thinking because there's a lot of forces out there that want to do it. There's a lot of forces that don't agree with the national policy. But, you know, they're a very powerful group. And if they ring, pick up the phone and ring the chief constable of that force and say, this is how you've got to do it, it's really difficult to turn things around. Well, yeah, no, I agree. Look at Millwall Everton. I mean, Everton, weeks before Millwall Everton, Everton was all over social media telling them that they're going to be doing this, that and the other. And then obviously they turn up um, massed by, you know, losing their police followers, their police guard as such, um, and, and then turn up in the middle of Bermondsey, um, about 150, 200 um, and obviously, you know, the rest of it is it was all in the media and everything else. Um, but that was, you know, Elbill knew that was coming. I mean, you know, what I heard is that they basically plotted up in East London completely uh, unwatched, which I find hard to believe. Um, you know, allegedly they stopped the coach from Euston Road, got off the coach at Euston Road, got onto Euston Station underground, got over to East London. How the hell 150 Everton fans can do that without being spotted by PTP or, or, or the Met or anyone else, um, you know, surprises me. Yet it's Millwall's fault when it all kicked off. Um, and it's the same as anywhere you go, you know, Millwall's reputation. And, you know, football hooliganism now is probably a small minority compared to the amount of fans will go to games, but football or football policing is still led by 
that minority. Maybe maybe we give it a bit more than what it is. Probably say 25, 20%, maybe 25% of, of fans who go to football um, are involved or, or, or look for fights and hooliganism and all that sort of stuff. But there's 75% more go that don't. So why aren't we policing on that 75% rather than police on, on the 25%? Absolutely amazes me. Um, and in my time, I mean, it, it, in my time, when I was um, a fan of the board of Millwall, I, I've seen people um, get banned by clubs. I've even sat in front of um, uh, a chief superintendent in, in the Met and asked him um, why one of his police officers was invited to a, a club banning meeting with a fan, um, which I was told that's not true. None of my officers would ever do that. And then I placed a, a letter on the table and went, well, why is that his name there? Why is he going? Um, with that, I've never been spoken to by that police officer ever again. And um, the look on the chief inspector's face looked as if, um, you know, he wanted he wanted me to just disappear instantly. Um, but it's fact, it happens. Uh, and, and there's so much what goes on that, you know, fans are... are Fans are shafted before they even. If they, if they so much as sneeze the wrong way at football, they could basically ruin ruin the rest of their life through one copper arrest. And yeah, well, one of the thing that things that's always struck me, and I know Amanda agrees. Um, I, and I don't. I, it's all. Well, it is as if fans sort of expect to be policed in a certain way and accept it. And what I've never understood and can't understand now is uh, why fans don't collectively do more to push back I don't mean on the day but I mean in terms of challenge of legal challenge of getting together of crowdfunding of putting some resources together to challenge the decisions that have been made or or you know make complaints or or just do more to push back and try and, and get change because in the absence of that it makes you know even easier for you know the, the national unit and others to to sort of have this draconian view because there isn't that there isn't that pushback that that perhaps to be fair there are, there's one or two where there has been crowdfunding uh, where they tried to come together I think Derbyshire police have been taken to court but I can't quite remember where that went it probably died a death during the lockdown and we'll and we'll come back up but some fans groups took Derbyshire I think from memory so in terms of of what needs to happen. Um, I think there's a couple of things. Firstly, I, I, you know, I, it would be fantastic if fans groups got together more and, um, you know, pushed back more and took legal redress more. Uh, and I know that's difficult funding and everything else, but there are legal teams out there that would that would do some of this. I think it's important that, you know, no, as I think you said right at the beginning of this, no other sort of set of the, the community gets treated in this way. So where there's been change in all other areas and there needs to be change here, I think, but just in terms of what needs to happen, um, Mark Roberts and the UK UKFBU have got to go. I think they've had enough time there now. We're not going to see changes. We've seen that narrative about no to safe standing, no to alcohol ban, pushing neutral venues. Um, it, it's time that they went. I think you can replace the sort of national governance with having uh, a new body that's got fans reps on it, that's got the Sports Ground Safety Authority on it, that's got football safety officers on it, that's got academics on it, that understand crowds and crowd behaviour, that's got the police on it, that's got local communities. I think that needs to happen. I think you have to take whatever this body is out of the home office. 
because the Home Office is around punishment and crime and courts and all the rest. Take it out, put it in co- culture, media and sport, put it in communities and local government, but send the right message that part of you know the policing and the safety of football fans is coming away from crime and punishment and is going into something else, particularly, you know, let's do that after Hillsborough. Um, review of all the football offences. So Jeff Pearson talks much better than I can about why it's now long overdue, a review on the alcohol ban. So let's look at the whole framework of football um, legislation, like the banning orders, like the alcohol ban. Let's just have all of that properly reviewed. I think HMIC, which is a Majesty's Inspector of Constabulary, this is the sort of big watchdog that's very, very powerful. And basically, if HMIC come into your force and start looking, you know, uh, things get done. And I don't ever recall in my 30 years, I'm not aware, I've looked and tried to research it, I don't think football policing has ever been reviewed nationally by HMIC, and I think they ought to do. Um, but that review must include fans. It's got to include not, not just looking at the cops uh, and the grounds, but speak to fans about their lived experience of being a fan. I think the Independent Office of Police Conduct, those people that deal with police complaints and, and, and what have you, they need to look at Section 14B banning orders and just look at the use of that power and see whether they're still comfortable with it. Uh, and as I said before, more fans need to engage on the policing experience on in games and, and be more willing to, to sort of group together and come forward. Because if we do these things, Mickey, then particularly, particularly now as we need to get the game back on its feet after, after the virus, whenever that is, because as I said, some clubs are going to go to the wall if we're not careful here. Then there is, you know, there is a positive future out there that we can have. You know, we can have an option of safe standing for those people that want to have it. Um, you know, there might be a choice of having a beer, at, you know, at a game whilst watching the match. It might not be every single match, but you know, the majority of matches you might be able to have a beer and not have all that carrying on the nonsense of the concourse behind. And you might have, you know, one of the things that we've been pushing for for a while, you might have some some specialist football police officers. Not talking spotters here, although there's a huge debate about, you know, do you, do you have spotters or don't you? I'm talking here about, about football engagement officers, people that aren't there to do intelligence gathering, aren't there to film, but are there in small number, sort of more quality than quantity, if you know what I mean, who can engage, who can problem solve, who can proper, properly welcome and help guide visiting teams you know, into an area and back out again that don't involve massive use of coercion and use of force. Uh, the, the football liaison offices is one of the things that we've been pushing for for some time. So all of those things taken together, I think, can, can help to sort of rejuvenate the, the game, get people back into grounds, get people back into... Um, back into attending football rather than being ripped off for watching it. And, you know, it's never, ever been more important when this lockdown thing does come off. It'll never have been more important to sort of give that, give the game that shot in the arm that it needs. But it has to change. No, I agree. And I mean, like, the reason fans aren't back in grounds at the minute is because the police has basically not wanted it. This, you know, SAG has, has approved it. You know, most people have said, you know, they don't have an issue with fans being in the grounds. They don't have fans coming in, everything, you know, there. The big problem is, is the fact of fans congregating in pubs um, in the area where the police have concerns. They don't want to be able to police that on top of everything else. So 
they're the ones at the moment. I mean, I've, I've, I know this firsthand that they're the ones who have been sticking all the all the problems into it. Um, I agree with you. I think you know there has to be a complete overhaul of um, the football unit has to go. It's, it, it's not fit for purpose. It, it just doesn't work. It costs too much money. It just doesn't work. Um, you know they've come in with these ISGs um, with these. Um, with these um, advisory groups, um, I sat on one. Uh, there hasn't been meeting for probably eighteen months now, or, or maybe nearly eighteen months now. I don't think I've been on one where um, it was with the Met Police Unit. But every time we had a point what we wanted to raise, it was par par. It wasn't, you know, we were told what they were going to do. We were told that you know arrests have gone. That was one thing we were told that arrests on racism has gone down. Um, yeah, they're obviously ploughing the, you know, oh, well, because potential race because this, because that. And, you know, the advisory groups to me are just a tick box exercise from probably to get more funding or, or you know, maybe in community groups they might work. Um, but there was a lot of fan representation there from various groups, premiership, championship within London. But we didn't really. And if you wanted to raise a particular point, then you were sort of more advised by um, non-police staff on there to maybe it's not the best place to raise it here. You know, it's, it's not really for this. It's not really for it. And it was just pointless. I, I don't see the problem. Yeah, there's a lot. I know where you're coming from. There's a lot of inconsistencies. There are some good independent advisory groups and, and some that are, that, that are less so. And, and for me, if you're going to have one, uh, and I am, I, am a, I am in favour of them, if you're going to have them, then they've got to be chaired by one of the fans, not by the police, got to be chaired by, you know, someone representing the fans. You've got to have, uh, you know, in West Yorkshire, we set one up uh, in sort of just before I was going and we had, you know, representations from Bradford, Leeds and Huddersfield there. Um, you've got to involve them in the planning for big games. So you don't talk to them after the event. You get them in before the big game happens. You get them involved in the planning. You get them into the planning units. You walk the ground with them. You, you sort of do this no surprises, this is what we'll do, this is how we'll be dressed, this is what, you know, and, and you just completely bring them into the whole planning and operational side of that. Uh, and then, uh, you know, and you, you keep them, if they want to be, most of them are going to want to watch the match. But, you know, there'll be some that might want to sit in the control room and might want to see things unfold for themselves. Uh, so what, you know, what why the police did what they did, I think no problem with that from my point of view get them into the control room and let them see what's happening. And then at the end, you know, have the conversation with them. What's the felt experience of fans? What did we get wrong? What could we have improved? And completely and utterly involve them. And that I think they can add value in that way. But as you say, if they're there to be talked at, um, rather than being completely and fully integrated in, in, the foot, in the local football policing unit, then, you know, I don't think they're adding much value, to be honest. I totally agree. We, you know, they, they they weren't an offer of being involved in the pre-planning. It was basically this is what we're going to be doing, and this is how we're going to be doing it, and this is the intelligence, you know, within reason of what's going to happen. Um, and it wasn't great, you know, it, it was pointless. Um, but my personal experience from when I was fan on the board and and working closely in fan groups and whatnot was that if the police took time through liaison officers through you know your um your liaison officer out there i can't think of his name now he was a, a good lad and a guy from um villa and a couple of other teams that if they actually um embark on telling us what's going to happen where we can go what we can do 
um, and, and be free realm, you know, like when we played Aston Villa, go drink in Birmingham. We've got trains to lay on and we'll bring you back. Um, these are the times of the trains. This is the last train. Um, and the same with Leeds. Look, there's buses if you want it, but if you want to walk, you can walk. You can drink pretty much wherever you want. There was a few skirmishes there and, and probably surprises a lot of people that some of our, some of our um, more... <sighs> more um, stronger fans, we say, stood shoulder to shoulder with some of your officers and defended certain establishments and members of the public what were in those establishments, much to the surprise of probably everybody within the country. But they did. There's a there's a nice, um, I think there's a nice trip advisory uh, review talking about a certain hotel um, where that happened. But if you explain fully what's going to happen, there's no secrets, there's no hidden, um, then I think that the game and the fans go the right way. Those who want to cause trouble will still do it and they do it away from the grounds nine times out of ten anyway. You will get, you obviously, the extras, but I think the majority of people will be treated well. Um, you know, I don't think, as you said earlier, I think some of the way they treat people who are on the fan coaches and they've got a walk or disabled, they sort of treat them, you know, move. I told you to move when people are struggling. I think a lot of the attitudes there are bad. When we played Tottenham in the FA Cup, um, they basically walked us down the main strip at, at Tottenham with um, rival va- rival fans on three corners of the road. So as we turned the corner to come into our lane, there was fans on three corners screaming, shouting, throwing stuff, everything else. And the old Bill was just standing there watching it happen. You know, it's like, it's as if they go, oh, it's Bill, it's all right. We, they deserve a bit of it. Do you know what I mean? And that's, I think that's the problem. They let reputation what, what run. Things- one of the things that we've seen, and we've seen it over and over and over again when we do the, uh, the Project Enable stuff that we do, is that there is always an overwhelming uh, focus on the visiting fans. Because in a sense, it's easier, isn't it? You know the trains that are going to come off. You know the coaches that are going to come in. And uh, the police always invariably put the vast majority of their resources and their thinking on the away fans. And in a lot of respects, do very, very little with home fans. What we then see is, in a lot of occasions, it's actually the home fans that are causing the problem. But because you've put all your cops around the, you know, the bubble that is the visiting fans, you've then got very little to deal with what your home fans are doing. And we keep saying to the forces that we work with when we go out there, which is, what are you doing with your home fans? What what sort of relationships have you got? What what networks have you got? What are you doing to try and you know calm some of that down and build relationships with them? Because, as I said, otherwise it just becomes a... So let's say, I don't know, Millwall leads. You know, I guarantee you that the 99.9% of the... Or 95, shall I say, 95% of the police operation will be focused on Millwall or whoever it is, whoever's coming to the city. That's where all the cops are. And then it's home that are doing the skirmishing sometimes. It's home that are picking people off uh, and causing issues. It's the home kids, you know, the young antisocial behaviour. Uh, kids that are causing issues and winding folk up and what have you. Uh, and we keep saying it. We, can, we, we see it as it's just what we try and do on these observations. We're going in completely in plain clothes. Not, it's not spying at all. In fact, if anything, we're going to look more at the police than we are with fans. But we walk with fans. We go in the, in the pubs. We, you know, we, we integrate ourselves. So if there's, if there's a walk up to the ground, we'll be in the middle of all of that to get the tone and the temperature, what does it feel like? How, how is this group being policed? How are the police behaving? Is this working? Is this not working? 
And so that gives you a really rich sort of um, sense of the best way to do things. And, and as I say, through that methodology, we've seen time and time again that there's far too much emphasis on what your visitors are doing as opposed to what your home are doing. And I would argue that the easiest people to sort of build a relationship with is your home fans, the people that are there every Saturday, you know, every other week and, and, and change very little, actually. I agree. I think also, I think a lot of the police officers who patrol football matches are, unex are, are inexperienced in that level of hostility. Um, and the problem is, is that they only need to start being a bit bullshy and, you know, the response they get back is sometimes not what they expect. And then it's obviously cameras on, battens out, sprays in hand, ready to go. Um, and that just fuels the situation. Um, it does. Like, and that's why we, the other call we keep making is rather than have, you know, dozens and dozens and dozens of cops, why don't you have a quality of cop that, that has been in these situations before, that knows football fan culture, that you know has got a bit of experience around dealing with crowds and that doesn't immediately overreact and doesn't immediately you know, escalate things through a lack of experience and, and you know, a bit of anxiety around what's happening in, in, in the crowd. Um, and we keep trying to put that across that, you know, that across to forces to say get more quality. That, that will... If you've got good quality, good communicators, good people with with working with with fans that understand it, you know, I would argue you don't need van after van after van after van of cops because that sort of that interaction between those that know what they know what they're doing and are comfortable with doing it, they tend to do a better job for you. Now that's it, and look. Just to bring this to a, an end, obviously, I know you're mainly football and whatnot, but through your experience, what do you make of the recent where we've had, obviously, the protests and everything else through um, various, you know, um, Extinction Rebellion and um, BLM and, and, and others, um, how that level of policing was done compared to when they realised that football fans were potentially going to come to town to protect the statues, et cetera, et cetera, how they were policed? Um, well, first of all, I think, I think they say with, with all of this is there's, there's various calls and a lot of sort of right-wing stuff coming from politicians around banning protest. That is the last thing we can possibly do in a democracy. I don't really care what you're protesting about, but we have to absolutely defend the right to protest as much as we possibly can. I think the problem is this political narrative about the police being soft and you saw, didn't you, after 2011, Boris Johnson went out and bought those water cannons. You know, there was all sorts of headlines out there about being soft. You saw with Black Lives Matter and officers taking the knee, etc., that that immediately got put into, you know, cops are being soft. They, are, they should be arresting these people, not taking a knee and showing solidarity with them. And because, there was an, and because that, that statue of Colton, Colston was allowed to be toppled, you then got this massive pressure on the police to get tough. And that's when you started to see things escalate then because of the political pressure to be tough, make arrests, drive people off the streets, etc. And uh, it could have been done, I think, in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a better way because what you've got to hold on to is these, and I know it sounds bloody ridiculously quaint and old-fashioned and romantic and what have you, but you have to hold on to these values of the British Bobby, which is respect, it's decency, it's respecting you know, democracy and people's rights, no matter where they're coming from. And you've got to hold on to those uh, as a police commander and as an officer. And too often, 
the newspapers and the politicians drive the cops into more of a proactive in your face. We, we, you know, we cannot lose control. We've got to be shown to, um, to, to keep control about things. And that, the, the uproar when the Colson statue went over, um, I absolutely agreed with that. I've spoken to the police silver commander who took that decision not to intervene. And he was absolutely right. He didn't have enough cops to intervene. He didn't, he didn't have enough cops that were specialists in terms of taking people off that statue that had climbed on it. You imagine if one of those gets toppled off and breaks the neck or kills themselves, there'd be an absolute outcry about that. And importantly, the, the commander that made that decision was a local officer. He was the local lead around hate crime and around a lot of the tensions in that community. And he knew exactly what the right thing to do, which was not to make that situation worse. Uh, and it's that local sort of level, those the, that local values of, uh, you know, serving the needs of democracy rather than serving the needs of right-wing newspapers um, that that we needed that, that we need to have. I agree. And look, I suppose one thing is, uh, you know, and I don't want to go into any detail on it, um, but the incident in Sheffield um, where the fan got his head caved open, um, it's nice to see that there is charges brought forward now and, and obviously now it's in the hand of the courts and we let, we're, uh, we'll see where that goes. Um, I don't want to press, uh, you know, prejudice the case, the case in any way, so I think we can't really say any more on there. But look, um, Aaron, I want to thank you for your time today. Um, I would like to get you back with... Um, Jeff and and maybe a couple of other experts and, and you know talk some more details in um, the FBOs um, and laws around um, football fans as such. We are looking um, for those listening. We are looking to do a legal um, show as well where we're explaining your legal rights, what to do, what not to do uh, if arrested at football. Um, so yeah, so look if you've enjoyed this. Um, then please do, you know, check out our socials, make sure you subscribe and we will be doing more shows like this. But it's just left for me to say, look, thank you very much Owen, for your time today. I do understand you are a busy man and, um, and hopefully your um, knowledge and, and your opinion on this stuff will resonate with some out there. Pleasure. Thanks for inviting me, Mickey. Thank you. This summer, L.L. Bean invites you to simply step outside and enjoy the fresh air and sunshine. We'll be your guide with tips and advice to get more out of every moment outdoors. Here's one. Set yourself up for easy backyard adventures by leaving a tote bag with the essentials right by the door. Sunscreen, bug spray, and a few hats or pairs of sunglasses. Now you'll never need to search your house to find them. 
For more fun ideas, easy how-tos, and inspiring stories, visit llbean.com slash guide. With bills to pay and debt piling up, it's easy to feel overwhelmed. Personal loans through NetCredit can provide funding up to $10,000 to help you get back on track financially if eligible. Our secure application process allows you to customize the terms that work for you and your budget. So check your eligibility today without affecting your credit score and help get your finances back on track. NetCredit, a more personal, personal loan. All NetCredit loans and lines of credit are offered by a member of the NetCredit family of companies or one of our lending partners. Visit netcredit.com partners for more information. Away days are great, but there's nothing quite like playing at home. The same goes for McDonald's. Maximize your home ground advantage with McDelivery. Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans.